Cinephile. Nicholas Cage. Very sincere group of film enthusiasts who are proudly cinephiles. Oh my goodness! Warren Beatty apparently read the wrong name. This is incredible. Moonlight won this picture. Cinephile. Ethan Hawke. It's kind of like I'm a professional actor and I direct for love. There's so much in this world that's dividing us, and music is one of those great tools that brings us together. All right. There's baseball and World War II. It's kind of a dream. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. All right, yes. Why wasn't I still recording? That would have been gold. Going to run that as the open. open. It's a light, warm story that's punctuated by the power of Redford's smile, one of the best special effects in movie history. That's from Adam Graham of the Detroit News. He's talking about the new film called The Old Man and the Gun. Robert Redford says it's going to be his final acting performance. I'll review that movie along with mid-90s, a directorial debut of one Jonah Hill. And I'll also have Rick Pastor's review of Halloween, which we're all fired to see since he's a horror movie aficionado. So... If Ricky gives it the seal of approval, that's a good thing. Thanks, as always, for checking out Cinephile with Dan Sanzik, Rick Passmore, I'm Adnan Burke, and, of course, our friend Ben Lyons is always a contributor. And Ben is very busy right now, so I want to start with this. In Search of Greatness is a documentary that he is the executive producer of. It's opening in theaters this Friday, November 2nd. Go to InSearchOfGreatness.com. And that's where you can purchase tickets for this documentary from Gabe Polsky. And particularly for sports fans, you'll enjoy it because it's a focus on what makes a great athlete. And uh, Wayne Gretzky, Pele, and Jerry Rice are the athletes featured. Uh, We're hoping to get Gabe Polsky on the podcast next time around. And then I'll give a more in-depth review of the documentary. But it's excellent. And you can check it out in searchofgreatness.com. With that, we launch in. Old Man of the Gun. Robert. Oh, by the way, excuse me, of course, on iTunes is where you can check us out. Uh, give the podcast a rating out of five stars. I rank my movies at a four Maple Leafs. I haven't checked recently, but I'm sure the reviews are there, and really that helps us functioning here. So we appreciate all the love and support. Old Man and the Gun, Robert Redford. Quite simply, if you like Robert Redford, you like the movie. If you don't like Robert Redford, you're not going to like the movie. If you're kind of meh on Robert Redford, you'll kind of be meh on the movie. It's the story of a guy named Forrest Tucker. It's based on a true story. He was a criminal who had a reputation for being a really nice guy. He would walk in with a briefcase and a smile and a fedora. He would ask to see the manager. The manager would appear with a smile. He would say, hey, I'm going to need to speak to you about something. Open up his jacket, show his gun. Eventually, the bank manager would would be kind of jolted. He would smile, reassure them everything's fine. Just put all your money in this briefcase. I'm going to go. And he ended up getting a reputation for being a guy who pulled off the string of heists. And after being caught by the authorities in San Quentin, would honestly find various ways to escape. Uh, so Detective John Hunt is on his tail. We've got a little cat and mouse game. That's uh, played by Casey Affleck, the Academy Award winner. His first performance since Manchester by the Sea. And Sissy Spacek plays a love interest of Redford's. And they have a really nice chemistry to them as well. Danny Glover and Tom Waits are also in the movie, which caught me by surprise. I haven't seen those guys in a while. But they play Redford's accomplices. Um, so honestly, it's a light, a breezy thriller. There's not a whole ton of backstory to it. But Robert Redford is one of the great American actors of the last 50 years, and it's a pleasure just to see him on the big screen again. So, as I said, if you're a fan of his work, and I've talked previously on Actors Showcase about Redford and where movies like The Sting rank and more recent movies like All is Lost and entertaining movies like Sneakers or The Last Castle, I suppose. Drew Brooks, a big fan. Gandolfini. Uh, you should check it out. But honestly, there's not a whole lot to it. It's a very nice, breezy entertainment and it's well done. Affleck, he kind of just phones it in, to be honest with you. If you're watching me for Casey Affleck, you should go watch uh, Gone Baby Gone instead. Can we get some Maple Leafs out of you here before you continue to besmirch my guy, Casey Affleck? I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. 
with the, with the strong caveat of if you love Redford, then you'll love the movie. I like Redford. I enjoyed it. If you don't like Redford, you, trust me, this is a hard pass. The next movie to recommend or at least discuss is Mid-90s. And this is directed by Jonah Hill. Yes, that Jonah Hill wrote and directed it. And it's about a group of 13, 14-year-olds who were living with a turbulent home life. I guess we'd call them truants back in the day. It's 1990s Los Angeles, and they're just a bunch of skaters. They're out there having a good time, smoking cigarettes, smoking weed, trying to score some booze, hanging out at the local skate shop, insulting each other, making fun of each other, using a very popular gay slur back at that time. And that's essentially the film. And I guess if those who liked it would point to the fact that it feels authentic and realistic, and this is the way kids talk, and especially kids of that age, I mean, you definitely feel like you're watching a movie from the mid-90s, uh, then it has that sense of place. Having said that, I didn't like the film because I just thought it was one note. I mean, it's essentially a bunch of kids who I never want to hang out with. And when I was their age, I wasn't one of them. So I didn't like these people anyways. Who the hell wants to hang out with a bunch of 14-year-old skateboarders? Um, and like I said, they, they're just crass and profane and bullying to others and just not the kind of people I want to spend time with in life and certainly not on the screen. So I'm already... You know, I have a disconnect to them, and I just have no interest in appealing to them. It's not to say every character has to be relatable, but there has to be some element of sympathy, and I just did not get that with these guys. The main character is actually a real-life skateboarder, uh, Sonny Soljic, and they try to build a relationship with him and his older brother, Lucas Hedges, also from Manchester by the Sea. But but Hedges just comes across as like a one-night, one-note bullying older brother. And uh, I just didn't really care for his character or his performance. So I give Jonah Hill credit for the fact he's obviously made a movie important to him. Maybe this movie was was he in the movie, or maybe he knew people like that, and he's been out there trying to promote it. But for me, it didn't work. It kind of reminded me of the film Kids, remember the Larry Clark film back in 1995 with these just you know revolting characters doing these terrible things. I, I wouldn't say mid-90s is a kids for 2018, but in that vein of dislikable characters who are adolescents and treat people like crap and don't really care about the repercussions. So that's mid-90s. Is it funny? There's moments of it, but I, I found the humor was kind of mean-spirited. So that's why I wasn't even appreciating it. The humor is done with mockery and making fun of other characters. I'm like, you know what? I just don't really kind of find it. Sounds like you're saying Jonah Hill stick to acting, Ben Affleck <laughs> stick to directing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Both of you guys know your sweet spots, so stick to where they're best. I'm going to give mid-90s one and a half Maple Leafs. The next movie... And trust me, we're getting to Passmore's Halloween in just a minute, is Wildlife that's directed by Paul Dano, speaking of actors turned directors. And this is a story about a marriage in crisis back in the 1960s. Jake Gyllenhaal plays the dad who is recently unemployed and is looking for work and decides to go fight some wildfires, leaving his wife, played by Carrie Mulligan, who is absolutely a Dan Stanzik favorite. So she is obviously very upset that why he's leaving and he's doing it for like a dollar an hour, like some terrible pittance to go obviously risk your life fighting fires. But he just, he just feels this quest and this mission to go do it and ends up leaving his wife and his child. So the movie then ends up focusing on Carrie Mulligan and her character. And I realize as I'm watching it that this is kind of making a statement for female independence of that age and how like a lot of, you know, working women or middle class women ended up being left to their own devices and had to kind of try to find their own way. Uh, and so the character, who I don't know if it's based on uh, Paul Dano as a kid or where he got the influence of, but Ed Oxenbold plays the kid. He's a 14-year-old. So the focus is on Ed and his mom, Carrie Mulligan, as now they're navigating life without their dad. Jake Gyllenhaal is out there fighting wildfires. And Carrie Mulligan ends up falling in love with Bill Camp, who I love because he was in The Night Of. He played the cop in The Night Of. God, he's great in that uh, show. 
Uh, so the story becomes about this family in crisis, and eventually Hall returns. And now the story becomes, okay, what's going to happen once Dad returns? Can Dad uh, keep this family together, or has the family been fractured? So as a domestic story, uh, I can certainly appreciate what Paul Dano is searching for. I thought he needed a little bit more oomph uh, overall, particularly in the climax. I would have liked a little more resolution, but I did think there were good performances. It's like Sundance 101. It's one of your indie movies that you know does well uh, on the festival circuit. So I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs for Wildlife from Paul Dano, currently playing in select theaters, starring Kerry Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. Lastly, I want to talk about this Jim Carrey show called Kidding, which is on Showtime. So I love Jim Carrey. I think he's one of the great actors of our time. Not just great comedic actors. I think he should have been robbed of Academy Award nominations, uh, you know, for The Truman Show or Eternal Sunshine or even, um, you know, he played Andy Kaufman, Man on the Moon. Even his comedic roles. Like, God, you know, why, can't a, why can't a comedic actor get nominated for Best Actor? So Jim Carrey's back, which is a great thing to see because he's been very busy um, with his paintings and doing these kind of uh, political commentary. So he's back doing a show and talk about Mr. Rogers being everywhere. The character is based on a Mr. Rogers type. And the conceit of the show is this. Imagine if you're a kid's talk show host, but you're somebody who's actually dealing with a lot of pain in your own life. So on screen, you are full of sunshine and you're radiating positivity for young kids. But off camera, you're depressed and he's dealing with the fact he lost one of his twin sons in a car accident. And he's divorced from his estranged wife. He's trying to repair that relationship. And um, his dad, played by Frank Langella, is the one who's the executive producer of the show. Love Langella, Frost Nixon. And Catherine Keener plays his sister, who also works on the show. Another great indie actress. And it sounds like it has all the elements here. And it's definitely strange and weird. And Michelle Gondry was involved from Eternal Sunshine. I believe he's the executive producer of the show. But honestly, I'm, I'm punting on the show after seven episodes because it's just too strange and too irreverent. And honestly, it's too dreary. The show ends up being, you know, moments of him being as the kids talk show host, but then off camera, like it's just, it's a drag watching this. And I give Jim Cray credit for saying, listen, I'm going to play a character who is suffering through this real malaise. And he's such a good character and a good actor that he does bring it to life. But it's one of those movies that are scary TV shows. that's just so downbeat. I need a little bit more. What are the, what are the plot devices? He's falling in love. And he's in love with a woman who's dying of cancer. And like he's he's literally with her because she's like, well, I have three weeks to live. And he's like such a good guy. He wants to always be a good person. Everybody that ends up sleeping with her and they're having this relationship as she's dying. And I'm like, you know what? I don't I don't want to spend 30 minutes every week on Showtime watching Jim Carrey in this relationship. There's also one scene. Catherine Keener's husband is <clears throat> the daughter is uh, taking piano lessons. The dad drops the daughter off piano lessons. The daughter looks at the window and sees <laughs> Her piano teacher and her father engaging in a sexual act, which leads to the most memorable line of the seven episodes that I watched of Kidding, which was when Catherine Keener approaches the piano teacher and says, did you hand my husband? Which is an expression I had never heard before. I, I'm familiar with hand jobs, but that's the only time I've ever heard it before. That, that line alone almost made the seven episodes worth watching. And there's definitely some moments of humor, but overall, I'm going to give Kidding two Maple Leafs. I just can't get through it. But I love seeing Jim Carrey. And if you love Jim Carrey, maybe you should check it out. Rick Passmore, Halloween. Let's do this. I had to go see this twice. <laughs> After the first screening on Thursday, I sat there and I and I loved it. I loved the initial screening. I love the fact that it's very true to the roots of what Carpenter and Deborah Hill did 40 years ago. Jamie Lee Curtis is, is probably might be her best performance of her career, which is saying something because she's been in a lot of fantastic roles. Fish called Wanda would like Fish to called Wanda. <laughs> true 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 lies. True lies is brilliant. Are you kidding the strip scene? My but God. 
but I was sitting there thinking about it, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of tonal beats that it shares with the original, which happens in in remakes or reboots and and different thing at um, new sequels and stuff like that. However, on the second viewing, because I am seeing some of the uh, the turns already and things that happen, it kind of took away from it a little bit. It definitely does not have the rewatchability of the of the original. It doesn't have the rewatchability of some of the sequels, just in terms of just general uh, enjoyment of just bad filmmaking. So it kind of falls in this weird gray area of being a really good film, but not one that I would probably go back and watch multiple, multiple times. And I'll grant I'm going to buy the Blu-ray when it comes out. I'm a Halloween fan. I want to support. What that what David Gordon Green and uh, Danny McBride wrote, I thought they made an excellent script that has a lot of subtext with victimhood and surviving, and especially with the Me Too era. There's there's a little scene um, when Jamie Lee Curtis they uh, it's it's been pretty played up at this point in commentary and, and dissection, but when the uh, the two uh, journalists slash podcasters are trying to goat her into information, and she's pretty much done with it and they offer her three grand and she just goes all right time's up i'll accept my payment and just stands there looking out the window with her hand out like she's like get the get the hell out of my house so there's there's a lot of nuance in it and there's a lot of very blatant references to things going on and very you know political pro-feminist statements in it but at the same time that's also what Deborah Hill wrote uh, in 78 when they wrote the original Halloween. She wrote honest characters, and that's something that's been talked about for the last four decades is how well-written the women were. They weren't just bimbos and whatnot just to be there like they became in uh, future horror films. How scary is it? That's what I want to no, know. Hang on. To dance, I was about to say, these movies are either, especially horror movies now, are just really scary or they're scary and funny with like a tongue-in-cheek wink-wink. Which one is this? Get that one out of here, by the way. Yeah. It's not that scary. If you're if you're attuned to horror films, yeah. and especially, uh, that was one of the gripes I've had uh, told to me by uh, friends of mine that are big horror movie fans and stuff like that. They're saying how not scary it is. I'm like, but at the same time, it's doing a lot of what Carpenter and Hill did back 40 years ago. You watch Halloween now, it's still, it's the idea of it is scary. The idea of this fate, this emotionless shape stalking you, coming after you with no regard and just no, you can't stop him. That's the fear. It has a few jump scares and it has a few really solid, brutal death scenes. Uh, there's a, I won't say who the character is that gets this, but Michael Myers does a nice little, Head stomp and, um, sorry, Dan, you're going to censor this out too, but I heard, uh, on a interview with Danny McBride, he said he wrote this in the first draft of the script and he kept it in the final draft of the skip. Michael puts his foot down and brain out of his head. <laughs> and he said it's still in the final draft of the script and that's what they went with. And it, that is true. It is, it is much, much gorier than the original, uh-huh. but in today's standards, it's very tame. A lot of the stuff that you saw in the trailer, another big gripe for me is how trailers reveal too much, and this yeah. one does that with the jump scares, but the story is fantastic. It's extremely well-written. Jamie Lee Curtis's performance is fantastic. Um, so it's not satirical. like it's not, it's not like Scream. No, it's not satirical like Scream because I think it's just it's more playing on the original current fantasy. politics. Not really politics as much as just the mindset of, how we are as a society mm. Vic, like, um, blaming victims and trying to understand 
monsters mm-hmm. as opposed to just letting monsters be monsters and trying to get help for victims. I mean, this is a Lori Strode that spent 40 years without any kind of psychological help. She just went back to school the day after all this stuff happened. There, there is no Halloween 2 here. So she is someone that's become a doomsday prepper. Her house is a complete, like, lockdown fortress. And she's got a ton of guns. It's very, it's very weirdly pro Second Amendment in the terms of what it's supposed to be for defense. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she's got, she, none of the guns are used aggressively. There are, like, everything is meant to be self defense. And she's having this moment where, uh, the biggest moment she has is, um, let's say about 20 minutes into the film. She's sitting out in her truck outside of the facility where Michael's going to be transferred. Mm-hmm. And the bus rolls out and she's just trembling and shaking and she, grabs this she's she's got an alcohol problem and she just grabs this shooter of vodka and, and ch- shakingly chugs it down and is on the on the fringe of tears holding a revolver in her in her lap and watches the bus go by and just she just has a breakdown you don't know what she's doing whether she's going to hurt herself whether she's going after the bus but then you kind of figure out later in the film you figure like maybe she was going to just Damn the consequences. I'm taking Michael out. He needs to die because that's been her whole thing. Like, I, like he needs to die. He shouldn't be alive. He shouldn't be any of this. So, overall, giving it three Maple Leafs, three stars. It was three and a half when I first saw it, but after the repeat viewing. And then so, there's some things that were really um, – I, I did take umbrage with how they were setting up um, – character development, how they played their new their, played their homages. I thought there were some really good homages in it with uh, the Halloween 3 and like all the kids wearing the the silver shamrock masks. Uh, but I also thought there were some uh, connections to other films and especially with one character in particular. Uh, if you see the film, you'll you'll figure out who I'm talking about. But they definitely play him as kind of a, a projection of the Rob Zombie Halloweens mm. because I feel that this character is basically the same as a character in in the original, but he's a lot dirtier and I don't, you don't really quite trust him. And by the end of his arc, you'll understand why. Halloween three Maple Leafs from Rick Passmore, old man of the gun, two and a half wildlife, two and a half mid nineties, one and a half and kidding two Maple Leafs. That's a recap. And now it's time for Mike Golick Jr. A special guest review of Mandy. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. You know, honestly, you look at the cost and no commission fees. Other brokers charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. It's also easy to understand charts and market data. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. And you can learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with personalized news feed. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at cinephile.robinhood.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E dot robinhood.com. All right, at long last, we've been teasing this. Michael Jr. making his debut appearance here on Cinephile. You are a cinephile and somebody who saw the movie Mandy, starring Nicolas Cage, which I recently reviewed. 
I want your unadulterated thoughts on this Nick Cage film. It, it was everything that you guys build it to me. So when I asked the the cinephile podcast crew about this movie, so the first hour, a little so, second half, everything that you would expect, and, and it did. There was a certain cutoff point where in the first hour, I gained nothing from the characters actually being on screen. Mm-hmm. It was basically from... The introduction of the whole crew in the van, they see Mandy. From there on, you've got a movie. Because mm-hmm. once I get to that, you know, everything that happened once they, you know, this ragtag, you know, maniac group of bikers invades the house and all that stuff. And really for me, life began at the Cheddar Goblins commercial. For me, <laughs> that was where it all started. So from there on out, it was an absolute acid trip that I love to death. Describe for people the Cheddar Goblins commercial and what exactly that entails. Because this may help people go see the movie. So Cheddar Goblins is essentially the movie's brand of mac and cheese of choice that plays on the TV that was not often used in this house. Like, we never really saw this thing on, except in this moment after some of the most grotesque horror known to man. He walks inside, and the first thing he sees are on the commercial, it's just a goblin on the screen vomiting macaroni and cheese all over these children who are ecstatic. They are overjoyed to have this mac and cheese belched up on their faces. And I just thought, like, wow, real life needs more Cheddar Goblin commercials. There's about a half a dozen great Nick Cage moments, blood spurting over his face, over the top, glee in his face. Like, I mean, if that was the Nick Cage we got, like Mike Ryan, our buddy from Lombard show, I, I don't know if he's seen Mandy, but I feel like one of us should text Mike and say, listen, you should watch this, but pick it up at like the 45-minute mark. I feel like he would appreciate that, the the bathroom shouting sc- scene as he's you know just chugging <laughs> vodka and throwing it in his wounds, screaming into the camera. And then for me, when he goes just full, like Nicolas Cage is all that is man in this movie. Right. He's an outdoorsman. He's chopping down trees in the beginning. And then you get him in the forge. He's a blacksmith. He's forging his own instrument of death to go exact <laughs> revenge on this group of mutant bikers. He crafts the most elaborate death scythe I've ever seen. That part was all masterful. Like, just him, just this raw, gritty, sweaty, blood-covered man. Michael Jr., follow him on Twitter, mgolick, jr57. Please do us a favor. When we tweet out this link to promote your appearance, just include the hashtag Cheddar Goblins. All day. Your home is important. That's why GEICO helps make it easy to save on homeowner's insurance. Because home is more than just a place. Home is where you have a cute little reading nook for those rainy days when you want to curl up with a good book, but you don't even read, so you just sit in there during thunderstorms and scroll through memes on your phone and laugh in the darkness. (laughs) The GEICO Insurance Agency could help protect the dark, meme-filled corner you call home. Call GEICO and see how easy it is to switch and save on homeowner's insurance. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and a real thrill to bring in Ben Foster. His film is called Leave No Trace. He's also been in great films like Hell or High Water, The Messenger, 310 to Yuma, and others. Ben, thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be here. Leave No Trace. You know, the first thing I st- stuck out to me was Deborah Granick's made another movie. Hallelujah. She did Winter's Bone, which uh, put Jennifer Lawrence on the map, and she's a terrific writer and director, and it was so good to see you and her teaming up in this movie, which, again, focuses on the environment and uh, very elemental style. What was it that attracted you to the movie, and what was it like working with Deborah? Well, to your point, I, I, I was a big fan of Deborah's, and, 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 and before her work in Winter's Bone, the film Down to the Bone with Vera Farmiga, uh, that deals with addiction, it was just a knockout. Knowing that she only makes a film every five, seven years, this was a, uh, an exciting read. But w- what really, I guess, just tore me up was, was uh, I didn't know what it was about when I read it. Uh, and, 
my wife and I had just found out that we were having a daughter. Uh, so the story is about a father and daughter uh, saying goodbye in many ways. And um, so I felt pretty tenderized to a, a story about parenthood. Yeah, speaking of that, I was watching the film, and my wife said to me, well, Ben Fox, he's way too young to be a dad for Thomas and McKenzie, who plays your daughter in the film. And I said, well, this guy is a veteran. You never know people have kids at a younger time, and especially with their, with their set. I, I just love the chemistry you had with her, and you obviously had a real paternal sense of that. But, but I agree with her point that you're a young guy to be a dad. So how did you kind of um, develop that chemistry with Thomas and, and be this father to her in the movie? Well... You know how the birds and the bees work. It, it ain't. It ain't necessarily when a. You know, it's that age. So, so if she was playing around fourteen, you know, you can do the math. I'm. I. I just turned thirty-eight yesterday. So it's conceivable. <laughs> <laughs> you look good for your age, man. Uh, look at it that way. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, but uh, the, the 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 connection with Tom, she's. She's just a great actor, and and her light is still on. You know, you you, you look her in the eye, and you, you can see that her light is on. Uh, so that was that was such a it's just a joy to work with with that kind of you know actor. Um, and we went into the woods, and we we did a primitive skills training, and uh, learned to do all those the survival elements uh, practically. And you do enough of those tasks with somebody, you're, you're either going to get along or not, and, and we, we happen to get along quite well. That goes seamlessly into my next question, Ben, which is the preparation for the role. You're playing a guy, a veteran who suffers from PTSD. He and his daughter are homeless to to our eyes, but in his eyes, this is the world that he wants to live in. He does not want to be in a home. He does not want to live in an urban center. He wants to live in a forest, and he's going to just forage and, and have this bond with his daughter, and that's it. So did you go like all Daniel Day-Lewis and like live in a cabin for a year? How did you, how did you approach the rule we we had the the opportunity to to uh to work with uh, a primitive skills coach dr uh, nicole appelian out of portland and 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 she specializes in in these skills these these primitive skills and uh that if i can do it physically if i can do the job physically then then i don't have to think about it when the camera's rolling and if i don't have to think about it uh Something's felt, camera picks it up, and, and that's usually when it starts to get good. That's a terrific performance, and uh, you give a really good uh, performance in the movie. Leave No Trace is the film. I encourage people to check it out. Hell or High Water is a great film, man. God, we love that movie here at ESPN. Four Oscar nominations. You won an Independent Spirit Award for your performance. Chris Pine paying your brother in the movie. David McKenzie directed it. Taylor Sheridan wrote it. Jeff Bridges, obviously, so memorable in it. How were you able to play that character uh, and play it so well? Well, I'm I'm so glad you you dug it. Uh, he, he was. Uh, he, I read the script. I knew what he looked like. Knew what he sounded like. T- so much of that is is a tribute to Taylor Sheridan, the writer. Uh, it's that man just leapt off the page, and um, there are just some things that just make sense. And that guy made a lot of sense. Uh, and I, I, that's probably not a healthy thing to admit, but it, it's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as far as working with Chris and Japanese stories from the set, what was it like to work with those guys? Uh, I know it's, it's set in West Texas. I'm not sure where you shot it. But what was it like being out there with those guys? Uh, a hoot. I mean, he, Jeff Bridges is is exactly the guy you want him to be. He's super smart wild imagination and he's like playing music on set with his guitar uh uh pine is uh one of my favorite people to 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 hang out and and work with he's 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 a he's just that was our second film we did back to back actually 
he's great. It was it was a yeah. I mean, it's, it was shooting guns and drinking beer and raising hell, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, there's no way around it. <laughs> did you ever like get Bridges to do like some Big Lebowski? Is that just something you wouldn't do as an actor? Or did you just say, oh, what the hell? Let me just ask him to do a little bit of, bit of the dude. I, I, you know, I'm not going to ask, but if somebody does and I'm in earshot, I'll be very grateful. <laughs> ben Foster's who we're talking to right now in Cinephile. His film is called Leave No Trace. A movie that I loved of yours is called The Messenger. I wish more people had seen it. Uh, with Woody Harrelson, he was nominated for an Academy Award. But yeah, I thought you guys were both fantastic in that movie, and I uh, dealt with a, a part of service that I don't think enough people realize. For those who haven't seen the movie, you know, you and Woody play a couple of guys who have to go to the homes of families and inform them uh, that their son has died uh, in military duty. And I said, what a what a grueling job you have to do, and especially your character is just so. Um, you know, just so difficulty dealing with it. But I remember that scene where where Woody finally loses it at the end. It was such a powerful movie. Tell me about the messenger. Well, getting to work with Oren Moverman uh, was a joy. He, he's the writer director of of the Messenger and Rampart and the Dinner Time Out of Mind. He's 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 a he's a true auteur, and and um, uh, getting to ask those questions with him was a was a was a privilege you know we we all get that call that 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 a loved one's gone uh, and we all make that call at some point if we live long enough that's part of this experience and uh, that being someone's job and it's someone's job a casualty notification officer that's what it's called you you go and you knock on a door and you tell a parent or a brother or a lover or that that their person's gone, and 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 the cost of that um, is a part of war that we never discuss. We look at numbers, statistics, but that's a that's a human to human relations job, and 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 just so much respect for our military and and, and those that serve, and, and we don't even understand. Most of us don't understand the depth to to which the the men and women serve our country. Yeah, it's a very. I appreciate those thoughts and echo those sentiments. It's a very moving film. What was it like working with Woody Harrelson? Oh, he's he's just he's the best. He's Woody. He's just yeah. I don't know what to, I mean. We've done we've done a few gigs together, and um, yeah, the same. There are good folks making good things, and that and that's heartening in, in a time of we're in a world of celebrity nonsense. Um, Jeff Bridges, Woody Harrelson. These are. These are uh, amazing artists and, and, and humans that care about humans. It's, you know, couldn't ask for anything more. I don't know how uh, much you pay attention, Ben, to critics. I know most actors just want to focus on the work, and I totally understand that respect that. But this quote, I think, is interesting from Matt Zoller-Seist, who's a critic I really like. He said, Ben Foster is one of those actors who makes even a bad film worth seeing. Sometimes he suggests the film you'd rather be watching. I, I think it's a compliment, although I'm not totally <laughs> sure. What's your reaction to that quote? Uh, well, I, I, I'd say that, uh, I'm glad that, that, that he enjoys, uh, watching, uh, some of the films that I've been in. And, and I probably would agree with him on certain cases where I had wished, uh, uh that one might have been made a, mm, differently, <laughs> but you can't, you can't, you can't, you know, uh, my department is one department and it's a big collaboration and no apologies and no excuses, uh, I like making things about people and with people, and some work, some don't. No I doubt about it. Leave No Trace works. Yeah, and you know. I, I, I'm, I'm focusing on like these smaller films, right? Leave No Trace and The Messenger, or Hell or High Water. But you've made some big, big movies. X-Men, The Last Stand, The Punisher. 
How does that experience compare when you're making these big budget popcorn movies to these smaller, more intimate films? Well, the, 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 on one hand, uh, d- doing a larger film just means that your props are more expensive. It doesn't mean the experience is, is, is different than make-believing, and that's what we do for a living. On, on the downside, it's art by, uh, by committee, and that can sometimes dilute perhaps the vision of a single you know, filmmaker, which I'm just personally drawn to, you know, writer, director, filmmakers. So some are successful, some aren't. I, I'm a fan first. I like big, small movies. I, I like all of it. One more yeah. for you, Ben, and I appreciate the time. James Mangold, you mentioned writer-directors you like. I, I love him. And 310 to Yuma, I thought it was a good Western you made with him. What, tell me about working with James, because he's one of those directors who's he's done so many different genres, and he's really excelled in all of them, I think. James Mangold is such an amazingly talented writer-director. I have the utmost respect for him. I just saw Logan for the second time. Love that it's movie. So, it's so good. It's like yeah. a 70s noir. It's such a badass film. And, and damn it, Wolverine made me cry. <laughs> I actually cried at that movie. So hats off to, to, to Mangold. He's awesome, and so are you. 310 to Yuma, The Messenger, Hell or High Water, and Leave No Trace. Make sure people check it out. Ben Foster, thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Have a good one. He's just an average man with an average life. And his reviews dictate that. Oh, right up my alley. First and foremost, playing to my strength. Dan Stanzik is. I thought it was a little, little much. Every man. All right, so people have been clamoring for this. We have not. Every man has been uh, missing an action man for the last couple of cinephiles. He's now back with a bang. He's from, <laughs> was busy on the road. He was traveling. Dan Stanzik's back. There's two reasons I'm incapable of cheating. Want to hear them? One, if I break the rules and I get caught, I'll get kicked out of coaching. And what's the second reason? I might not get caught. (laughs) Blue Chips. Yes, Nick Nolte. The prescient 1994 film starring Nick Nolte as the beleaguered, down-on-his-luck, frustrated, burned-out, surly, foul-mouthed college basketball coach Pete Bell. Bell's Western University Dolphins program that wears blue and gold in his base in Los Angeles, so put that one together, is in the midst of a disappointing season. Bell has led Western to two national championships, but now he's on the hot seat. He's swearing left and right at his players and the officials, even punts the ball and gets ejected early on in the film. And he's cantankerous with the media, which includes Ed O'Neill, who is at the peak of Married with Children at the time and decided to go for this serious role. After suffering the first sub-500 season of his career, Bell is under pressure to turn things around. At a meeting with his assistant coaches, which is held in the office of a sneaker company, I wish I was making this up, Bell is told that if he lands Butch McRae, played by Penny Hardaway, and Ricky Rowe, he'll be in the Final Four the following season. Coach Bell hits the recruiting trail and runs into a handful of actual coaches playing themselves, including the late, great Jerry Tarkanian at UNLV and Jim Beheim, who's still coaching Syracuse 24 years later. Bell appeals to the families of the top recruits and seems to have made great inroads, but both ask for improper benefits. One's mother wants a house with a lawn and a new job, and the other's father wants a new tractor. Despite the constant cursing and ornery demeanor, Bell appears to be a man of morals and character. He scoffs at the request by the recruits and their families, but the desire to win and return to prominence proves to be too much to quell. Bell relies on friends of the program to steer the recruits in his direction. In the meantime, he also lands an unheralded prospect from the depths of Louisiana named Neon, who is played by Shaq. 
And as you might expect with Penny and Shaq in the film, the basketball scenes are excellent. I would argue that they probably go on for too long, but the director, William Friedkin, hope I'm saying that right, chose to use actual basketball players because he felt that actors make for unconvincing athletes in most sports films. Along with Penny and Shaq, Bobby Hurley, Calbert Chaney, Ellen Houston, Rick Fox, and others were used. With McRae, Rowe, and Neon in the lineup, Western upsets number one ranked Indiana, coached by the legendary Bobby Knight in the season opener. And Nolte actually shadowed Knight during Indiana's 1992 season to prepare for the role. So Bell got what he wanted. But do the ends justify the means? What means more in a game corrupted by money? Rules and integrity or winning and success? I give the film three stars on its merits alone and an additional half star for being so far ahead of its time. Blue chips. All right. I did not realize, as you said, it would be so ahead of its time. At the time, it was thought to be, you know, entertaining popcorn sports flick. Nolte's great. I, mean, I love the opening. He just comes into a crazy tirade, leads the room, comes back again. You know, these type A crazy basketball coaches, as you said, Bobby Knight to the extreme. Dan Dock, as we both know and love here at ESPN, says he, I don't know if he's a consultant or he's in the movie. He but- may be. I was looking for Dockage because I know he's probably an assistant coach in Indiana at the time. You may see like a, a shot of his hair before it was all gone. Yeah. But I, I wasn't sure if I could, if I could point him out. Well, he was a part of the process because they told me, I think he spent a couple days with Nolte, and I said, what was he like? He was a great guy, you know, heavy smoker, you know, he gets after it. He goes, but the biggest thing that I remember about him, I said, oh, just an amazing acting t- talent or just the way he would listen and observe you? He goes, no, no, brutal B.O. Like, just, <laughs> I said, that's your biggest brutal. <laughs> I said, just, just like, just the breath. He goes, no, no, like, B.O., he stunk. I said, just maybe the character, because he's just... He, goes, he I don't looks know what... disheveled well, yeah. most of the film, but... Right. He goes, I don't I know think B.O. It... is like a character trait. I don't think it's... <laughs> he you said, can't I don't... act. You can't act B.O. You either have or you don't. He said, I don't know if it was method acting, but he stunk the entire time. Which reminds me, Nick Nolte's book is terrific. We've been trying to auction it off here in Cinephile. Once again, nobody has claimed it yet. The question that I asked all of you, for God's sakes, you can just Google at this point. Nick Nolte's voice, as described by Toronto Star film critic, his voice is like what? Just tell us what that is. Tweet us, Cinephile ESPN. You can have an autographed copy. No, not by Nick Nolte, by me. My autographed copy of Nick Nolte's autobiography, which dovetails nicely with Dan's revisitation of Blue Chips. Uh, the movie, I remember Penny Hardaway, right? He's homesick. He's pretty good yeah. in the movie. I thought his, his character yeah. was Penny right. Jack, do you think that was like a precursor to He Got Game and Spike using Ray uh, Allen yes. like an actual basketball player? Absolutely. Sure, right? Absolutely. I, that's why I agree with you on the pression part of it, because I think... If you had to ask me to watch a basketball movie, I would immediately say he got game. But Blue Chips is probably better than I realize and should get credit as being the template of sorts for other basketball movies. I'm sure Spike's, you know what, rather than get an actor to play a player, I'd rather have a player and that's authentic. I'll nail the basketball scenes and the acting. I can just work with the guy. I was eight at the time, so I don't know how it was received. I remember seeing it. But was it seen as like, oh, this is what's actually happening with college basketball? Or was it seen as this like... This never goes on. Yes. This is some fantasy. Heightened reality of what was happening. Maybe it happens in small circles, but this movie is really just taking leaps of faith with a typical Hollywood eyes treatment of it. And I'm like, no, no. This was actually out of its time. How about Beheim? Doesn't want to pay the players. Your guy. And the, no, and the, it's not. Let's let, let, leave Shane Beheim out of this. It's my guy. Guys, at JCPenney, you can find all the great looks, whether you're in the office or on the go. Raise your game with Collection by Michael Strahan or relax and look good on the weekend with MSX by Michael Strahan exclusively at JCPenney. JCPenney, style and value for all. When a film critic and director don't see eye to eye, Rick Passmore goes in defense of...
All right, Ricky, it's been a while. What do we got? Well, ever since uh, Leatherface and Michael Myers became indie film icons, the slasher genre has seen many antagonists to create nightmares and some insidious humor. Beyond all the reboots and retellings, canons changing and cheapening the value of films before it, one film has tackled the idea of slashers in an inventive light. And no, I'm not talking about Wes Craven's Scream. Talking about 2006's Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. It's a darkly comedic 96-minute meta-mockumentary that follows a titular character in his path on becoming a mass-murdering icon the likes of Freddy, Jason, and Mike, as he's referred to in the film. Leslie's played by Nathan Basil, and he takes Taylor, who's played by Angela Gothels. Uh, you know her from Home Alone, the older sister in Home Alone. Uh, she's a college journalism student inside, uh, and she's uh, taken inside the preparation and inner workings of his first quote-unquote job. Along with her crew of Todd and Doug, Taylor follows Leslie through his workout regimen, his studies of both human anatomy and illusion practices, and is set up for his, quote, survivor girl, the one who will create his legend. He introduces his mentor, Eugene, played by the late Scott Wilson, and his uh, Ahab, the grizzled protagonist that will help aid the survivor girl, played by none other than Freddy Krueger himself, Robert Englund. It takes a turn when Taylor and crew realize this isn't just a silly story, but is in fact very real. When they decide to stop their project, the film switches from documentary to to traditional narrative style. And I'll stop there from uh, discussing any more plot points to avoid major spoilers. The film dissects and disrupts many of the tropes and schools of thought behind slasher films, addressing the symbolic nature of weapons, hiding and escape, as well as the need for gratuitous sex and drug use among victims. Basil is fantastic in the role of the rookie serial killer, bringing an odd depth to the mind of a cinematic monster while also chillingly portraying such a being. While the horror genre saw much more a much more polished satire by Drew Goddard and Joss Whedon in 2012's Cabin in the Woods, Behind the Mask does a fantastic job of setting the groundwork for meta-horror in the new millennium, much like how Scream reset the slasher genre a decade before. Released by Anchor Bay, it sadly grossed less than $70,000 theatrically, theatrically in three weeks, but received a cult life on home video, earning a Saturn Award nomination for Best DVD Release in 2008. Critics were favorable of its execution with a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes, but a slightly weaker 66% on Metacritic. Fans of the genre have turned out for the film, but I still deserve it, uh, still feel it deserves a bigger audience. And you can watch the film right now on Amazon Prime. I've never seen it, haven't heard of it. You had me at titular. And also, how about a thought on Robert Englund, who is Freddy Krueger? He's actually like 5'9", British accent. Like, if you ever seen him in life, it's shocking, right? Yeah, and he plays he plays a straight uh straight man in this one, no makeup. He's only in about four scenes total, but just the fact he's there and also uh, another um uh, another cameo by Kane Hodder who played a majority of the Jason Voorhees characters in Friday the 13th has a quick little cameo at the beginning of the film. Uh, a lot of this ta- the film does take place in a world where uh all of these things have happened. Michael Myers and Freddy and Jason and Chucky, like all these like serial killers exist and that's what it's playing on is like where it's not just these things have happened and and they all live in their own little worlds it's almost like a career path for some of these guys and that's where like the scott wilson character eugene comes in him and his wife are very kind and respectful people even though he's a retired monster himself and they dig him out of a uh, sensory deprivation chamber he's been down there for three days and he's like, wow, he's like, what do you mean he's been down there for the, he gets up and it's just, it's part of the rituals, part of the training to be able to do stuff. And they really break down a lot of these things and kind of put a little more thought into like, Hey, if this is happening, here's why. And 
it's it's a I discovered it back when I was in college, right around the time it came out. as one of those things that was just at the video store. It's like this looks interesting. Rent it for a dollar, and then it's become one of my one of my favorite horror films. Cinephile ESPN, tweet us your thoughts on that last one because Danzy needs a studio and you have to leave. What are you dressing up as for Halloween? You're a 31 year old man. What are you dressing up as for Halloween? I'm a 31 year old man with three different costumes I've done so far. I've been Charlie Brown. I've been Matt Foley, motivational speaker, the yeah. great Chris Farley character. Hello. Living in a van down by the river. And I've also got Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty because my roommate's <laughs> dog is Morty. I'm Rick. It's been two and a half years. It finally just had to happen. The great Rick Passmore. Thank you, brother. All right. Thanks so much to Rick Passmore for In Defense of Dan Stanzik for Every Man of Blue Chips. Mike Golick Jr., a guest review of Mandy. And, of course, our special guest, Ben Foster. His film is called Leave No Trace. I encourage you to check it out. As we close here, I must give a big, heartfelt thank you to Carlton Gillespie, who has been indispensable to us here at Cinephile. He is leaving ESPN. But Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Michael Imperioli, Robin Townsend, Robert Townsend, excuse me, Mario Van Peebles, among the guests we only got because of Carlton, who is a fabulous talent producer here at ESPN. As I mentioned, he's going to uh, go on to bigger and better, but we cannot thank him enough for what he did for our project. So, Carlton, you're the best, man. Thank you so much. We will see you next time on Cinephile Reviews. I finally got to Robert For The first batch of screeners have arrived, so I got Robert Forster's film, What They Had. It was one of the first films that I... I got in the batch, so I cannot wait to review that. Hillary Swank, Michael Shannon, and Robert Forster. In case you haven't listened to the Robert Forster interview, I encourage you to check up Cinephile, our previous episodes, because Forster was an absolute beauty. And also, we'll talk about In Search of Greatness. Ben Lyons, executive producing that documentary. Hopefully, we'll have the documentarian Gabe Polsky with us. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.